Good morning, everybody. Welcome to you. My name is Tim Harris, pastor at Woodburn Baptist Church. I'm delighted to be with you today. I've had a cough this week. Anybody else? Everybody else in the state of Kentucky. I was um, driving, listening to the radio one day, and they said that in Kentucky, some people are getting what they're calling the 100-day cough. Like, I got 96 days to go of... uh, of this. It's not, it's just not going to be good, y'all. I'm struggling. Y- 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 y'all do the whole cough in your elbow thing? Do y'all do that? <clears throat> I was driving the other day. It was cold. Of course, it's winter in Kentucky. Don't get me started. It was winter and I was coughing. So I coughed. I'm driving down the road, you know, 70 miles an hour, coughing in my elbow. <laughs> and when you do that, it fogs up my glasses. Anybody else do that? <laughs> so now I'm driving, coughing. I can't see them. 70 miles an hour, you know, you know, coming toward you probably. Uh, it's, it's just rough. Plus, I'm married to a nurse, which I thought coming in would, would bring me lots of advantages because by this point with my mama, she would have left work, you know, to rub Vicks Vapor Rub on my feet, you know, and, and make me potato soup. But, but Casey, I get none of that. I mean, she's a nurse, so she actually, you know, has in her head that I'm not dying, you know, and so I, I get no extra sympathy. But y'all know what they say. God has women go through labor so that they will understand how a man feels when he has a cold. <laughs> Exactly right. Exactly. That's how it feels when I cough right there. Yeah. It's awful. It's true, y'all. It's just all true. Uh, let's talk about marriage. Uh, a little bit of review from last week. In marriage, you are united by a, say the word, covenant. It's a covenant. It's an agreement. It's a contract, but it's much, much deeper than anything you ever experience on on this earth other than this relationship with your spouse. It's a triangular covenant, we said, coming out of the book of Malachi, which means there are three partners in this covenant. And the most important partner is God is the Lord. He is the source. He is the one who sustains this whole marriage. Everything depends upon him. It's a triangular covenant to work together toward holiness for both and happiness for the other. Holiness for both. Marriage is not primarily about your happiness. It's about holiness. God is going to use your marriage if you're married. God is going to use your marriage to accomplish his purposes in your life. And his purpose for your life is sanctification. It's to make you holy as he is holy. That's his purpose. His purpose in your life is not just that you, so, so that you could know love and, and be in love and have a, have a family. That, that is not his primary purpose. His purpose is your transformation to make you like Christ. Understand? So, so when you're married, that purpose does not change, that the primary purpose is still God's transformation to make you like Christ. He will use your marriage to accomplish that purpose now that you're married. So understand, the purpose is holiness for both. However, I would say happiness for the other. It's not about your happiness. It's about your spouse's happiness. That should be your goal now, holiness for both and happiness for, for, for the other. I would go on to say this as well. Hard times in marriage are lessons in learning to love well. There are opportunities to learn how to love well. Love is hard. It's very, very hard. I know Valentine's Day is in a couple of days, and I don't recommend you write that in your Valentine. Your love is hard, you know. But loving well is something that it takes us a lifetime to learn. Love isn't something you come into your marriage with. It's something that you build together and years and years and years of going through hard times together. So going through hard times together becomes the most important part of your marriage. 
Write that in your valentine. Going through hard times becomes the most important part of your marriage. So open your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 24. This is the second in the series entitled For Worse, uh, Learning to Suffer in Marriage. We're going to look at Luke 24. If you ask, how do we learn to get through the hard times? How do we make it through hard times? I want you to learn from a couple in the Bible this morning. Their names are Cleopas and Mary. Cleopas and Mary, and we meet them on the longest day of their life, on a long, long walk home in Luke chapter 24. Now, I know that when I turn to this passage and say it's a married couple, some of you are thinking, nah, Pastor Tim, you're stretching this. This is the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and we read this passage lots and lots of times around Easter because it's one of the stories that comes out of the Easter story. The disciples are now leaving Jerusalem, making their way home, and Jesus comes and walks with them. But understand, I insist, this is a married couple. And I'm not the only person to say this. Lots of people see that. I mean, it's sort of plain. Notice there what it says. We have two of them, two of Jesus' followers, it says. It never says that they're both men because they're not. It never says that at all. But it does name one of them in verse 18. One of them's name is Cleopas or Clopas. Cleopas, verse 18, Luke chapter 24, verse 18. One of the disciples, his name is Cleopas. He's coming back from Jerusalem with another follower of Jesus, his companion. Now look over at John, real fast, John, just turn a couple of pages. John chapter 19, verse 25. The only other place that Cleopas is named is in relation to a woman who is his wife. And we find her in John chapter 19, verse 25, where? Standing near the cross where Jesus' mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. So we know that Clopas' wife, Mary, was also at the cross, who's at the foot of the cross. So uh, unless she called an Uber to go home, uh, understand, she's walking home now with her husband. Both Cleopas and Mary were at the cross. They were at the crucifixion in Jerusalem, and now they're walking home home. Now, if you still don't understand that, then recognize at the end of this story, they live together. They're in the same house. Unless this is like a Bert and Ernie thing, they're husband and wife. This is Cleopas and Mary, a husband and wife. And if you've never read the story this way, then understand now we're talking about a husband and a wife and Jesus walking beside them. Let's learn from them today. Luke chapter 24, verse 13. That same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. As they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them, but God kept them from recognizing him. Jesus asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? They stopped short sadness written across their faces. Then one of them, Cleopas, replied, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened here the last few days. Jesus asked, what things? (laughs) That just cracks me up, y'all, right there. You must be the only one that doesn't know about Easter. And Jesus says, why don't you just tell me about it? Yeah, this is good. What things, Jesus asked, the things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles, and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. 
we had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. This all happened three days ago. Then some women from our group of his followers were at the tomb early this morning, and they came back with an amazing report. They said his body was missing, and they had seen angels who had told them, Jesus is alive. And some of our men went out to see, and sure enough, his body was gone, just as the women had said. Then Jesus said to them, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. By this time, they were nearing Emmaus and the end of their journey. Jesus acted as if he were going on, but they begged him, stay the night with us since it's getting late. So Jesus went home with them, and as they sat down to eat, Jesus took the bread and blessed it. Then he broke it and gave it to them. Suddenly their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And at that moment, he disappeared. They said to one another, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked to us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? And within the hour, they were on their way back to Jerusalem. And there they found the 11 disciples and the others who had gathered with them who said, the Lord has really risen. He appeared to Peter. Then the two from Emmaus told their story of how Jesus had appeared to them as they were walking along the road how they recognized him as he was breaking the bread. My uh, favorite story as a kid was Alexander and the terrible, no good, very bad day. Anybody know this story? Yeah, it's a great one. How did you miss this? You, you people had no childhood whatsoever. Um, I love it. I went to sleep with gum in my mouth and woke up with gum in my hair. When I got out of bed this morning, I tripped on the skateboard, and by mistake, I dropped my sweater in the sink while the water was running, and I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. At breakfast, Anthony found a Corvette Stingray car kit in his breakfast cereal box, and Nick found a junior undercover agent code ring in his breakfast cereal box. But in my breakfast cereal box, all I found was cereal. I think I'll move to Australia. In the carpool, Ms. Gibson let Becky have a seat by the window. Audrey and Elliot got seats by the window too. I said I was being scrunched. I said I was being smushed. I said, if I don't get a seat by the window, I'm going to be car sick. No one even answered. I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. At school, Mrs. Dickens liked Paul's picture of the sailboat better than my picture of the invisible castle. <laughs> At singing time, she said I sang too loud. At counting time, she said I left out 16. Who needs 16? I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. I could tell because Paul said I wasn't his best friend anymore. He said that Philip Parker was his best friend and that Albert Moyo was his next best friend and that I was only his third best friend. I hope you sit on attack, I said to Paul. I hope the next time you get a double-decker strawberry ice cream cone, the ice cream part falls off the cone part and lands in Australia. <laughs> There were two cupcakes in Philip Parker's lunch bag, and Albert got a Hershey bar with almonds, and Paul's mother gave him a piece of jelly roll that had little coconut sprinkles on the top. Guess whose mother forgot to put in dessert? It was a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. That's a good book. I told y'all that's a, that's, that's a good book. It's a good book because have you not had days like that? Have you just not had days like that? Days like that are always hard, but... Uh, I guess what they don't always tell you is you're going to have days like that after you're married, too. 
Now, I'm guilty. I'm, I'm, I'm a pastor that stands on the altar with couples, and I will often say in the service, I'll say something like, you know, when you're married, you're going to double the joys and divide the sorrows. Got to double the joys. You know, it's twice as much happiness as half as much trouble because you're, you're carrying it together. And I insist that that is true. It, it really is true. It's true when the couple's in sync. You know, when everything is working, when, when, when the couple's in phase together, then, then truly it's twice as much joy and half the sorrow because you share both. And, but sometimes a couple gets out of phase, out of sync, you know what I mean? And, and then all of a sudden it doesn't work the same. You know, Casey's up and I am down. And so basically instead of like doubling her joy, I just kind of cancel her joy. And that feels nothing like having joy doubled. You know, I mean, it's nothing like the same. Book of Ecclesiastes says, you know, if a man falls and has no one there to, to, to pick him up, you know, how much better to have somebody when you fall to pick you up? I mean, Ecclesiastes is talking about how two are better than one, but it doesn't say a word about what happens if you both go down. When both of you are down and you're neither one able to pick the other one up, I mean, what do you do when both go down? Because let's be honest, sometimes in marriage, you, you, you both go down. And sometimes you're down together for a long, long time. What, what then? Well, as we said last week, your wedding vows prepared you for this. Wedding vows haven't changed in, 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 in hundreds and hundreds of years. You're always pledging unconditional love in unforeseen circumstances. And our great-great-grandparents were wise to pass these vows on to us. But, but, but you can learn a lot about the ancient culture by looking at the vows they've given us. For, for example, all of the old ancient vows talk about the threats to marriage and how you're pledging love despite these threats to marriage. But the threats were things like what? Sickness and poverty. In sickness and in health for rich or for poor. Because in the ancient world, in our great-grandparents' world, in, in their day, that was the most devastating thing that you could imagine, that, that, that somehow the crops would be lost and we would be you know, put into poverty. We wouldn't know where the next meal would come from. You understand that? Or if you take a walk through Old Union Cemetery up the road, you can find one single row where there's something like, something like a, a dozen children all buried in a row. And if you read the tombstones, you quickly learn that there was some sort of smallpox, a, a smallpox epidemic that, that ran through Woodburn and, and a dozen children died. You understand, back in their day, the threats to marriage, the threats to a marriage were primarily external. Things that would come from outside the couple, outside the marriage. Things like, you know, Nazi invasions. Things like smallpox or plague. Things like, you know, a, a tornado or a flood that wipes out the crops and therefore the family is thrown into poverty. I, I mean, that was their lives. And those are the sorts of things they anticipated would threaten the marriage. External factors. But you and I have to recognize that we are not living in our great-grandparents' day or age. Those are no longer the factors that, that really threaten our marriages. Most of you aren't really that concerned about Nazis this morning. And as a matter of fact, you know, the 100-day cough sounds bad, but it's nothing like the plague. We are unlikely to bury, you know, dozens and dozens of our children this coming year. That's just not the world that we live in. External factors are no longer the primary threats to our marriage. So since we no longer have to worry about smallpox and Nazis, 
We have this sort of liberty now, this sort of leisure, where in marriage we can just turn on one another. The threats to marriage don't come from outside the marriage anymore. The threats to marriage come from inside the marriage. In other words, issues related to the husband, just things related to him, or issues related to the wife, just, just you know, her mess, things related to her, or dynamics of relationship between the couple. People abandon one another now. They abandon the marriage covenant for reasons like, you know, incompatibility. Or for reasons like, you know, my needs aren't being met. Imagine if we had to make marriage vows now that reflect the kinds of threats we're going to have. You would have to promise to love each other through unemployment, through depression and anxiety. You understand? These are the things that, that we face. These are our threats. I promise to love you through the South Beach diet, through the paleo diet, through Weight Watchers. You understand? Our trials, our, our threats are very, very different. I promise to love you through your pornography habit. You understand? Internal factors are now larger threats because we really don't have any large external threats. We have a tremendous leisure to turn on one another, to abandon one another. It's, it's devastating. Now, I mentioned Clopas and Mary, the couple on the road home from Emmaus. R recognize that for them, they are experiencing a, a trial, a, a threat, so to speak. But understand they're going through it together, and it's an external threat. For them, they were followers of Jesus, close followers of Jesus, all the way to the cross, mind you. But they watched him die. And now they are walking home hopeless, dejected, with no real idea what happens next. But, but understand, that's an external threat. It's not the kind of threat that you and I would face. Our threats are more internal. Okay, let's talk about them a second. First off, some of you are still saying, what? You know, don't be telling me it's a husband and wife. It says up at the top, two of Jesus' followers, two disciples. Well, read your Bible. I mean, the New Testament, it is not uncommon to refer to women as disciples. Now, I'm not saying that any of those 12 disciples that are most famous, they're all men. They're named. We know that they're men. Some of them were married. They had wives. But I'm telling you that, that there were other disciples throughout the New Testament that, that followed Jesus, not all of them named and not all of them men. So it is very possible to apply the word disciple to a woman. Actually, in this case, it doesn't even do that. Verse 13, the Greek just says that day two of them, two of them, meaning two of Jesus' followers, were walking to the village of Emmaus. Why doesn't it just come out and tell us that they're married, though? Wouldn't we like to know that? Why doesn't it say Mr. and Mrs. Clopas walking home? You know, holding hands, stop for supper at the Cracker Barrel, like, you know, all couples do. I, I mean, why doesn't it give us that information? Why doesn't it tell us they're married? Well, honestly, there's enough in the text. It's not like it's a secret. It's not hiding it. I mean, they live together. They invite them in their house. But, but the other thing, please understand, don't miss this. The fact that they're married is not the most important thing in the story. It's not the most important thing. These two are identified primarily by their relationship to Christ and not their relationship to each other. Maybe there's a lesson right there. Maybe there's a lesson right there. If you want to know anything about Clopas and Mary, maybe the first question you ask is not tell me how you two met, but tell me how you met Jesus. 
Maybe the relationship to Jesus is the most important relationship here. I, I, I would argue that it is, and I would also say this about you. Your marriage is not your life. Christ is your life. Your marriage is not your life. Now, when marriage is good, you don't have to say this because people don't even think much about marriage. It's good. You just take it for granted. It's good. You share life together. You go to bed together. You wake up together. You just sort of go through, and it's good. It's awfully good. And for that reason, you don't think a lot about the marriage. But when marriage is bad, when you're suffering together or when you're suffering alone in your marriage, suddenly that marriage becomes the focus of everything because it's pain. It's like the thorn in your side. It's like the rock in your shoe. And every single step makes you ache. Everything reminds you of your unhappiness. Everything reminds you of her nagging and his unbroken promises. Everything reminds you of the pain. You know what I mean? And you become very, very focused on, on the marriage. But maybe, honestly, that's part of your problem. Maybe you need to pull back just a little bit and, and put some things back in perspective. Your marriage is not your life. Your husband is not your life. Christ is your life. Your wife is not your life. Now, I love my wife more than anything. And as much as we, we joke and, and I joke about her, I think you all know uh, th th this woman is, 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 is very, very important to me. I, I, I love her. But she is not my life. Christ is my life. I don't expect my wife to meet all of my needs because there is not any one human being on earth who can satisfy all of my needs. Only Christ can satisfy my heart. And if I come into my marriage, if I come to my wife as some sort of empty man wanting her to fill me up, I'm only going to know disappointment. She can't do it. And she's a mighty good woman, but she can't do it. Do you understand? Because she was never created to do that. Christ is the one who fills me up. Christ is the one who satisfy, satisfies my desires. Christ is Lord of my heart. So I give my heart to Christ. You understand? And then I love my wife with the Love that Christ gives me. Christ is my life. Did you understand what I'm saying? Is any of this clicking in your heads? Is it making you understand your marriage better? Because the problem is you get a lot of empty women that come in, and the only kind of man that an empty woman attracts is in empty man. So you get these two really empty people together expecting the other one to fill them up and meet their needs, and it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. And you are going to live with such disappointment. You are going to, I promise you, make each other so miserable because you're expecting the other person to do what only Christ can do for you. Your marriage is not your life. Christ is your life. Look at what Paul says in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. From now on, those who are married should not focus only on their marriage. What? Put that in your valentine, y'all. Put that in your valentine. From now on, those who are married should not focus only on their marriage. Now, we're coming up to 1 Corinthians 7 next week, so we're going to go into this passage. But I want you to understand what Paul is saying. Your marriage is not the most important thing. You're probably wise not to say amen, but you know I'm telling you the truth. Your marriage is not the most important thing. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is saying very, very clearly that, that serving Christ is the most important thing. This is a passage where Paul says it'd probably be better if everybody just stayed single because then you really could focus on Christ. But if you're married, you still got to stay married. I don't recommend leaving her, Paul says, but I do recommend you learn not to focus just on your marriage. 
Christ is your life. Your needs are to be met in Christ. Christ puts the love in your heart, and that is the love with which you love your wife, with which you love your husband. If you don't have love in you for your husband, maybe it's not his fault. Understand? Maybe it has something to do with the fact that your relationship with Christ is not what it ought to be. Do you understand? If you don't have love in your heart for your wife, maybe it's not her fault. Maybe the problem is you've gotten too far from the very source of of love itself, where love comes from. It comes from Christ. So Clopas and Mary are identified here as disciples, just two disciples. What if you started just thinking like that, that you and your spouse are just two disciples, you're two disciples first, first. So your wife, her, her duty, her, her, her aim, in other words, what you want her to do more than anything is to run after Christ, not run after you. Now that means she can't be your mama. She's not going to leave work and come and rub Vicks VapoRub on your feet when you cough. Wouldn't hurt, but she won't. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I I shoot a sermon in the head every time I do something like that. It wouldn't, but your wife needs to serve the Lord and not serve you. Understand? And your husband, your husband, he needs to be more in love with Jesus than he is with you. Because if he's more in love with Jesus, you're going to find an incredible love in his heart for you. So, as a couple, why don't you be disciples first? Why don't you make your relationship with Christ the most important relationship in the house? And why don't you try to love Jesus more than you love him? Why don't you just try that? Honestly, just since last week, I've had so many of you pull me aside in the hallway and say, Pastor Tim, just let me tell you, we've been through what you're talking about. Me and my husband, me and my wife, we've, we've been through the awful times. But, but then they all tell me the same story. They'll say, Pastor Tim, but here's what happened. You know, I was, I was just one day, I just, I, I went to the Lord and I was praying and I just felt like the Lord said, you know what, forget about your husband, just focus on me. I'll take care of your husband, I'll take care of your wife, you just focus on me. And person after person after person tells me that was a turning point. When they stopped trying to fix their husband and they just started trying to fix their own eyes on Jesus, you understand? Because if there's any hope for this thing, it comes from Jesus, not in your ability to fix him. Because if you could have fixed him, you'd have fixed him on prom night, 1974. Right? If you could have fixed her, if there was a switch, you could flip on her back somewhere and she quit nagging, you'd have found that switch a long time ago. You're not going to fix them. Transformation is a spiritual process, and Jesus does that. You're not Jesus. Why don't you focus on Jesus? Let Jesus take care of your spouse. Let Jesus take care of your marriage. See, here's the thing. This is absolutely the the, the amazing part. As they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself came and began walking with them, but God kept them from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? And they stopped short. Sadness written across their faces. Okay, and then for the rest of this story, what happens? They walk with Jesus for the longest time. This long, long walk home on the worst day of their life. They're walking with Jesus and they don't even know it. They don't even know it. Let me say this, and some of you are going are gonna to sort of have to think about this. It is possible to walk with Jesus without joy or hope. 
It's possible, but not normal. It's possible to walk with Jesus without joy or hope. Some of you are are proving this. Now, I I recognize that's a contradiction. Jesus brings joy. Jesus brings hope. But some of you, honestly, you, you walk with Jesus to some degree, but you don't have joy or hope. And I want you to know that's not normal. That's not normal. There's something disconnected. There's something contradicting your spiritual life here. There's something profoundly wrong when you walk with Jesus, even in marriage, but you don't have joy or, or, or hope. But Clopas and Mary, it's exactly what they do. I, I mean, do it, they, do, they do it for some period of time. They stop short. Sadness written across their faces. Verse 18, then one of them, Clopas, replies, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who doesn't know all the things that have happened here the last few days. And Jesus asks a question. Remember the Harris rule of biblical interpretation. Whenever Jesus asks a question, it's not because there's something he doesn't know. When Jesus asks a question, it is always, always to help us understand what we don't know. Now, here's the the situation here. They absolutely think they know more than Jesus They think they know more than Jesus about about Easter, about the crucifixion, about the burial, about the resurrection. They say, you must be the the only idiot in town that doesn't know about this. Well, just walk with us and we'll tell you the story. And they tell the whole story. And it is the saddest story on earth when they tell it. Now, they're walking with Jesus. They have no joy. They're walking with Jesus and they use the words, well, we had hoped. We had hoped Jesus was really going to turn out for us, but, but now. They have no joy, no hope, and yet they're walking with Jesus. It's probably a bad sign when you think you know more than Jesus. It's probably a bad sign when, when, you, when you just, you know, hope Jesus understands the pain that you feel. Seriously. Are you thinking that there's something about your marriage that Jesus doesn't know? For that matter, are you thinking there's something about your husband that Jesus doesn't know? Jesus has your husband every day, breakfast, lunch, and supper, just like you do. I mean, there is nothing that Jesus doesn't know about your husband. As a matter of fact, he knows his heart. Jesus knows your husband's heart better than you do, much better than you do. Jesus knows your wife. You think you have to hear her talk all day long, breakfast, lunch, and supper. Jesus has been hearing her since before she was born. He hears her, he sees her, he knows her, and he knows her heart. So just back up, back into perspective. There's nothing here about your marriage, about your spouse that Jesus doesn't know. He knows. It's probably a bad sign when you think you know something Jesus doesn't know. It's, it's also a bad sign when you lose hope. Notice what they say. It's it's really devastating. Verse 21. We had hoped. We had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. We we had hoped. Notice that. It's kind of a oxymoron, had hoped. It's, it's a contradiction. In other words, for them, hope is all in the past. We had hoped, past tense. We had hoped. Remember, hope is always about the future. 
Hope is always that idea that tomorrow could turn out better than today just because Jesus is the Lord of tomorrow. You understand our hope comes from him. Hope is always what causes us to live forward, to move forward. Hope calls us forward. It's what gets us out of bed every day. It's what makes us stay together as married couples sometimes because of hope, because knowing that Jesus can yet do something that we can't even ask for or imagine. Jesus is the one who brings hope. But, but for Clopas and Mary here, all their hope is in the past. We had hoped. We had hope, but, but apparently hope is not a part of their present, and it's certainly not a part of their future. I mean, for them, hope is gone. We had hoped. But bottom line, and this sounds really, really simple, but when things haven't turned out as you hope, just keep hoping. Don't ever find yourself saying, well, well I had hoped. I'd really hope that, you know, after the kids were gone, that, that, that our marriage would, would get on stronger footing. I'd really hope that once he found a job, he quit drinking. I'd hoped. I just really hoped that the medication would make my wife a little easier to live with. I'd hoped. Had, had hoped. Just keep hoping. Just keep hoping. Because here's the thing. Clopas and Mary, they had hoped. They had hoped that Jesus was really going to turn out to be something. And, and now for them, it's all in the past. But they don't even seem to recognize he's right there. He's right there. And right now, in your marriage, you not understand, Jesus is right there. You don't see him. You, you don't feel the joy. You don't feel the hope, but he's right there. And because he is there, you can have joy and you can have hope. Jesus is there. He is right there. An amazing thing happens, and it always happens this way. Verse 25 is a turning point. When's the turning point? When they stop talking and they start listening to Jesus when they tell the story, y'all, I mean, it's a sad story. And the more they tell it, the sadder it gets. I mean, they're all about, you know, oh, we had hope. And then he died. Are you the only one that doesn't know he's dead? He's so dead. I watched him die. Oh, oh you should have been there, stranger. He died. On a cross, he died. You should have been there. If you, oh, if you could have seen him, you'd know he's dead. <laughs> and Jesus said, can I talk for a minute now? Can I talk now? And then Jesus tells him the very same story back. Do you see that? He tells him the same story back. But when Jesus tells the story, it ain't sad. Explain that. When Jesus tells the story, it changes everything. When Jesus tells the story, this becomes a story of glory. I mean, this changes everything. And just, I mean, within an hour, they're running back to town telling the same story. Only this time, there's joy written all over their face. It's the same story. Only this time, Jesus is in the middle of it. Understand? Jesus goes back and he tells the story. But when Jesus tells the story, he tells the story with himself at the center of it. Now, you've got a marriage story to tell. And every time you tell it, it's so sad. If you only knew my wife. Oh, if you only knew. Oh, I just want to take the pillow and put it over her. I just want to, uh, oh, if you only knew my husband. Oh, if you only knew my husband. Oh, yeah. 
You know, every time you tell your marriage story, it is, I mean, it's break. It, you would make the best country song ever. <laughs> but, but why don't you stop telling that story? And why don't you ask Jesus to tell this story back to you? Why don't you let Jesus tell you the story of your marriage the way he sees it? It just might change your whole tune. When you tell the story, the sadness is written across your face. But when Jesus tells the story, you're back into town with joy. Maybe you need to let Jesus tell you your story back to you. Put him in the middle of it. One more thing. It's a small thing, but don't miss it. Verse 28, by the time they were nearing Emmaus, the end of their journey, Jesus acted as if he were going on, but they begged him, stay with us. And it's getting late. So he went home with them. As they sat down to eat, Jesus took the bread and blessed it. Then he broke it and gave it to them. Now, what's that sound like? It sounds like the Last Supper. It sounds like the Lord's Supper. But, 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 but don't miss just sort of what goes on here. There are cultural norms when you're in somebody's house. And Jesus is invited. He's begged to stay in their house as, as a guest. He comes in as a guest at their table. And there are norms. There are things that a guest does and things that the host would do. And Jesus switches the script there. Do you see that? Because Jesus comes in as a guest. They invite him in. But once he is in their house at their table, he takes over. Jesus begins acting like the master of the house. Jesus takes the bread and Jesus breaks it and Jesus blesses it as if it's his bread to break and bless, as if it's his table to preside over. Understand? And then Jesus takes the bread and Jesus starts serving everybody at the table as if, you know, he's the one in charge, as if he is the one who gets to serve, as if he's, you know, the master of the house. <clears throat> What's the lesson? Yeah. That house that Jesus enters, that house he will rule. Do you understand? Because he doesn't do anything else. Some of us invite Jesus into our families, invite him into our homes, into our marriages. But we just want him to stay up front in the guest quarters. Stay in the guest room. And then we want to still be master of the house. We still want to be in charge. It doesn't work that way. If Jesus is going to come into your marriage, he's going to need to rule your marriage. He's going to need to rule both of your hearts. If Jesus is going to come into your house at all, understand that he's got to be the master of your house. He's not just going to come in as some sort of invited guest. You sit over there. Now it might be time for you to leave. You understand? No, no. When he comes into the house, he rules the house. Honestly. You need to beg him into your house. You need to beg him into your marriage. Now, when he steps in, things have got to change because you won't be in control anymore. I know that you keep telling the same old sad story, and that story puts you in the middle every time. That doesn't it, ma'am. When you tell the story, in the very middle of that story is your pain, your disappointment, what you uh, were in, in, entitled to, how your husband has failed you. I mean, every time you tell the story, sir, it's the same old story about how she's cold as ice and has nothing to do with you and you just can't take it. You know, every time you tell the story, you're at the center of it. 
And I promise you, every time you tell the story with yourself at the center of it, it's going to be a sad story. Won't you let Jesus in? Make him the center. Won't you make the story of your marriage a story about Jesus working in the lives of two very, very imperfect people and how he can turn that life into something glorious? Why don't you let Jesus tell the story back to you? Why don't you bring him in to your house, into your marriage at the table right there? Why don't you let him rule? He will be the master of your house. He will be the Lord of your marriage. But you have to invite him in. Pray with me. Lord, we all become very, very self-centered when we are in pain. Pain makes us self-centered. It is hard for us, Lord, to think of others. It is hard for us to see anything past our own pain. And Lord, for some in this house, for some in marriages, Lord, the pain is real. And no one is saying that the pain isn't real. And no one is saying that the disappointment is not legitimate. And nobody is saying, Lord, that this marriage ought to be happy. What we're saying is that somehow, in ways that we don't always know or understand, on the longest day of our life, on the darkest road home, Jesus, you're still with us, walking with us, with me and my spouse, Lord, you never leave us. And if we would stop ourselves telling the story with sadness and let you, Lord, tell the story, Lord, you would help us rediscover joy. You would help us to rediscover hope. Lord Jesus, for too long, we've, we've prayed to you, we've complained to you, we've asked you why and how long, but we've never really been serious about inviting you in. Letting you come into our marriage and take over this thing. Lord, if somebody's got to fix my wife, Lord, you fix my wife. I just want to fix my eyes on you. If somebody's going to fix my husband, Lord, I just pray that you fix him, Lord. Just let me learn to love you. Lord, help us to recognize that we are born to serve you, born to love you, Lord, and you are our life. So, Lord, those of us who are married, those of us who are struggling and suffering in our marriages, oh, Lord Jesus, help us to have our eyes open so that we can see that you are still walking this road with us. And as long as we have you, we still have hope. Help us, Lord, never to let go of hope and faith and love for Jesus' sake.